In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. I don't just say this for uh, rhetorical effect, but Pentecost is at the same time one of the most exciting highlights of the Christian year and also one of the most dangerous. It's exciting because of the imagery of uh, violent, raging winds, people's heads on fire, dramatic gifts of the Spirit, fruits of the Spirit, and the very fulfilment of the promise of Jesus that this day would come. The Spirit would come and empower the infant church for its global mission. It's, it's dangerous because it points to an alarming lack of control on our part. There is a presence which can be felt, but never seized and held onto. Pentecost is a clear demonstration that God is free, and we can't make rules for how God will speak or act, or who God will speak through and grant particular gifts to. Anything could happen. So the celebration of this day offers a particular challenge for Christians of traditions like our Anglican one, uh, which could be said to rest more comfortably in God the Father and God the Son territory, which is more predictable and ordered and dignified than God the Holy Spirit's territory, which gets a tad unruly. And I challenge you to find a more Anglican way of describing the presence of the Holy Spirit than as a tad unruly. But without the Spirit, we are dead. Without vital bursts of spontaneity and freedom and warmth and an overflow of praise, we are lifeless. And I'd say there are similar risks if we were to go completely down that path of uninhibited freedom without also embracing silence, the continuity of some tradition, and familiar rhythms which hold us in tune with God, who is also a God of order and faithfulness and consistency. I suspect that when we hear the word um, Pentecost these days, alongside Holy Spirit, one of the first associations that springs to mind is Pentecostalism, that charismatic, exciting expression of Christianity which emerged strongly and only quite recently in the 20th century and has experienced remarkable growth. And the key markers of Pentecostalism um, are gifts of the Holy Spirit, like speaking in tongues. And third on the list of associations after Holy Spirit, Pentecostalism is probably Scott Morrison or ScoMo, um, who is, you know, famously a Pentecostal Christian. 
The outpouring of the Holy Spirit as described in the Acts of the Apostles and ever since then, when the Holy Spirit has moved strongly, results in an outpouring of praise and joy which seems unquenchable. Now you may not know, short history lesson, the modern expression of Pentecostalism has its origin in 1906 in Los Angeles on, at a place called Azusa Street when a group of black Christians were filled with the Spirit and demonstrated speaking in tongues, uh, healing, and there was constant praise for weeks on end. And within weeks, they'd already sent missionaries out to other cities and throughout the world. Only in 1906, that recent. Of course, because it's 1906 and it is the United States, racial tensions were intense and there was segregation through all levels of society, including in churches. But at Azusa Street, black, white, uh, other ethnicities all came together in praise under the leadership of William Seymour, a black bishop. After only a few years, though, the the movement had fractured beneath the pressure of white society to segregate, and there were again black and white churches. And Bishop Seymour, he retained an an integrated church, but with only a few members. But that modern revival, as well as um, the experience on that first day of Pentecost, and at other times, leads me to think that a key marker of the presence of the Spirit is unity, which, given the state of division between churches, is a concern. But to start, the disciples were all together in one place, And that gift of speech, of tongues, enables them to communicate across boundaries like never before. And to match that, to match those tongues, there is also a miracle of hearing. It doesn't get pointed out that often, from what I can tell, but it really seems like the other side of the coin is that those who were listening were hearing in their own languages. Miracle of speech, miracle of hearing. This is an event of sanctified communication, if you like, a sacrament of speech, where the misunderstandings and divisions that are so common are overcome by the Spirit of God. So we see, or hear, rather, of a miracle driving towards unity before God and powerful worship. And I should clarify, unity is not the same as uniformity. There is a difference there. But the Spirit inspires powerful worship in people, The sad thing is that this powerful worship is, like 
anything else vulnerable to uh, corruption. So I remember keenly uh, bumping into a woman on the street years ago who had spotted a cross around my neck and launched into uh, proselytisation, checking to see if I was born again of the Spirit and telling me that I actually wasn't saved unless I spoke in tongues. And when we parted ways, she very kindly indicated she would condescend to pray for me. Very nice. It might be harsh, but but I still regard that approach as reflecting some corruption of the spirit. But no church is immune to corruption in various areas. And that's not to say we shouldn't be vigilant and honest and be in the habit of repentance. But coming back to unity, let's look at an example of what the spirit does to people, of what happens when Uh, To borrow a phrase from a great New Testament scholar, Christ becomes the atmosphere we breathe. The spirit becomes the air which we take in and give out to the world. And I share this example because I give thanks to God that something like it is demonstrated very strongly in this community of the faithful right here. So it's, it comes out of a book by an Anglican clergyman named Geoffrey Howard, titled Dare to Break Bread, in which he is reflecting a bit on the manner in he, which he finds Jesus present in the Eucharist. Okay? He writes, As I administer the bread... The first person at the communion rail is Amy, 80 years old. Next to her is three-year-old Carmen, waiting to receive a blessing. And her sticky fingers clutch a lollipop while she swings on the rail. Brian, a 30-year-old schoolteacher, is next to her. Then comes Harry. He can neither read nor write and lives in a squalid housing estate. Debbie, a local journalist, is next, and then Jack, the homeless alcoholic, followed by Susan, a single mum. Shoulder to shoulder with her is Lucas, an electrical engineer, followed by Ron, who has recently been convicted of theft. Where Jesus is present and how he is present in this Eucharist is still a mystery to me. But that he is present is beyond doubt. Only Jesus of Nazareth could gather together round one table such beautiful and diverse people. Just like you are beautiful and diverse people. I won't get too soppy. But he is, he is talking there about the work of the Spirit, the same Spirit who filled Jesus, who energised the disciples, and who gathers the diverse people of God together. That Spirit is here. It's here in abundance. 
And Jesus promises even more than this. So I suppose the question is, just how much dare we expect of God? How much do we expect of God? Dare we risk just letting things happen and letting the Spirit loose in us and through us? Can our participation in the life of God reflect both a deep resting in silence and stillness of God and spontaneous bursts of praise and life which emerges from and then settles back into that place of stillness. I sense that this is part of the journey we are on together now, which is reflected quite a bit in how our praise has evolved over the past year. New songs, new prayers, times of stillness like in meditation, and tongues and voices which are reaching new heights. It's a wonderful and incredible journey that we are on together. So may the Spirit who set the church on fire upon the day of Pentecost bring us and through us the world alive with the love of the risen Christ. Amen.